Listener Production. Hi, this is Paul McIntyre. Welcome to the MI3 Audio Edition. I've been a business journalist for 25 years covering the marketing, media, agency and tech sectors. In this series, we talk to industry leaders about the global and local developments that you need to be across this week. Well, early this year, Brand Finance released its rankings on the most valuable and strongest brands in Australia, led, of course, by Woolworths with a brand valuation of $13.7 billion, followed by Telstra on $10.2 billion, number three was BHP at about $10 billion, Coles was number four on $9.9 billion, and rounding out the top five, Combank with a brand valuation of $8.9 billion. In the strongest brand index for 2022, which works off a base of different measures, retailers dominated, led by Bunnings. We'll get to a bit more of that a bit later, but amid the hot news of who was biggest and which brands were on the up, 66 of them in the top 100 in Australia rose in this year's report, but there were 22 that declined. Who were they and why? To answer all of this and more, we've got Brand Finance Managing Director Mark Crow on the mics today to unpack a little of that. But what's interesting here is that for all the work marketing does, and measures itself on in regards to brand health measures as a proxy for future business growth, is there a link from these softer brand marketing measures to what matters to boards, executive leadership, accountants, finance teams, and investors? Mark notes increasing interest from marketers and ad agencies to explore those links. Do they exist? So we'll do a little of that too. Welcome, Mark Crow. Let's get to it. It's been a while in the making, but we're finally here. Maybe just give us a quick uh, overview, really, of the big guns and what the top line rankings said for 2022 in your brand evaluation report, Mark, and welcome. Thanks, Paul, and uh, thank you for having us on. So the Australia 100 this year, once again, threw up some interesting results, a mixed bag as usual, as you've already pointed out. First and foremost, the top 100 Australia brands this year accounted for $161 billion in value which is 15% up from last year, essentially returning to pre-pandemic levels. So that's a positive result in itself. When you then break that down, the top 10 brands represent 20% of that value. So you see a very concentrated amount of that value in those key brands in terms of the two retailers, the two telcos, the four banks and the minor in terms of BHP. The retail sector is now the number one sector for the second year in a row ahead of banking and telcos. And retail is accounting for about 25% of the overall brand value in the top 100. And people may say that's not surprising given what's happened during the pandemic and the associated lockdowns where retail obviously had an advantage of being able to stay open while other businesses were under stricter conditions. And that's a fair point. But with that privilege came a lot of responsibility. And what we certainly saw among many of the retailers was they necessitated the ramping up of their online capability and home delivery, along with a lot of innovation among their uh, supply management channels. So it really hastened development of a lot of what retail has been seeing coming anyway. So that was a real benefit for them. And in particular, marketers, both in terms of those operating in retail and indeed in manufacturing, not only had they had to get closer to their customers, but more than ever, they had to work closer with their suppliers, with employees, 
to manage that increased consumer demand in a difficult environment where people were definitely on edge. And that created a lot of challenges for the retailers, which overall, looking at these results, they've met. And that's also been of great encouragement to their investors and well. So just just on that, Mark, I guess the big question is, will retail hold that top slot now that we're sort of coming through the other side of COVID or it's the next phase of it? And what happens, it was basically banks and telcos that, and retailers, the top three sectors, weren't they? And, and retailers sort of gone to the top. Um, what's your hunch on whether they can hold that? I think they will hold it because they've built up a lot of equity in terms of not just that customer equity, but also among those other stakeholders that I've just mentioned, their suppliers, their staff and investors. So they're very well positioned because that's now fueled their reputation. But of course, they still have ongoing challenges in terms of competition, the whole online capability. But it's the pandemic, in fact, in many ways, as I said, has really hastened their innovation across those areas. So they're well placed, but there's no doubt banking and telcos both have gone through very challenging times and still have challenges. But they, they again, I think for both those sectors, the challenge for them is to back their strategy, not panic and see through some of these short-term blips, which they've certainly incurred during the pandemic. And I think that goes to a wider story about marketers backing themselves, being that strong voice to continue to invest during difficult times. Just, you know, in terms of any other quick top-line observations from this year's report in terms of brand valuations? One of the interesting things we observe is during challenging times, it's often the the iconic brands, the strong brands that come to the fore because they've got, they have invested in a, a lot of equity over time. And during challenging times where there's economic volatility, people often look to those brands that provide assurance, easy navigation, and also a sense of choice that they're looking for easier choices at a time like this. And three brands that have done that well, interesting enough, are all very much heritage brands in Australia. The NRMA, for one, it's now got a top 10 ranking when it comes to brand strength. It is now not only the strongest insurance brand, it's actually the strongest brand in the whole financial services industry. Likewise, we've seen Qantas uh, continue to invest in their brand during the pandemic, and they've come out a lot stronger and returned to their previous brand ranking. BHP is an interesting one because it's invested a lot in the last three or four years in its brand in terms of its heritage in Australia, its iconic status, but not so much to build customer equity or drive sales, but really, again, a bit like the retailers, it's about developing and investing in those other stakeholder relationships like the BHP, which is strongly government, community and investors, where it's built up a lot of equity through a very sound marketing strategy aim very much at those areas which don't necessarily generate revenue but save on cost. Yeah, interesting. Would you just quick explain uh, the difference between your brand valuation top 100 and your brand strength? We won't sort of labour too long on it, but the inputs for brand strength, the index, is quite different to brand valuation. What makes up that, Mark? So when we're looking at brand strength, we're assessing three key areas. The quality of the investment in the brand, the equity the brand holds, which already we've discussed across classic customer metrics and then other stakeholder metrics. And then just as importantly, we're looking at financial performance, how much brand is contributing to overall business revenues. That's where you get your brand strength and 
brand strength is the basis of any brand valuation. And it is also the area which is the most controllable from a marketing point of view. That is where marketers can have the most influence. If you have declining brand strength, then in the medium to long term, you will invariably decline brand value. When we look at brand value, we're looking at brand strength, but then we're looking at, on top of that, the contribution brands make to business value. And then we're also then looking overall at market conditions. And market conditions are often the is the area for which marketers have less influence over. So when we're looking at brand value, what we will often do is break that down to look at the drives of change. How much brand strength contributed to the change in brand value? How much brand revenues contributed to the change? And how much market conditions impacted? So during the pandemic, what's interesting to observe is that many brands declined in value but that was more to do with the impact of economic conditions and volatility. They continued to maintain or increase their brand strength, and they are the brands that will come out of any challenging times stronger and more likely to gain market share. I'd be interested to see you know, what you're seeing um, sort of bobbing up and down on that uh, index, Mark. But I guess before we get into a really interesting conversation about you know, marketing uh, and the way they view and manage brands versus finance and investors and so forth and mergers and acquisitions, which I think is a fascinating one. There was some declines in the top 100. 66 were up, but there were another bunch that were down. Give us a sampling of who was down and why, Mark, if you can read the crystal ball. (laughs) So 22 brands declined. Many of them were directly or indirectly impacted by the pandemic and the associated fallout from that. So to perhaps give you examples, uh, Dulux have suffered due to rising costs, but importantly, they've maintained their brand strength. So the brand in itself has really helped fortify the business against rising costs and declining margins. Uh, Borrell, classic impact on it through the pandemic because of the drop in construction work, and therefore its brand equity has declined as well. Milo's an interesting one because it's continuing to decline over time as it is starting to lose its position as an iconic brand with a drop in consideration familiarity. And then, of course, not surprisingly in freight, you've got Horizon and Transurban, which are under pressure from a challenging environment and trade, trade issues with China. So you can see, again, there's this mix of market conditions, but a lot of these brands still have maintained their strength. And that's really fortified them in terms of minimising the, the impact of those market conditions, but placing them in a good position in terms of when they come out of the pandemic as well. Well, there's an interesting mix there of industry, B2B, B2C. It's quite mixed. The, the Milo one's interesting at a consumer level, Mark, because um, you're right in that still an old boy like me still sees Milo, I guess, as a, a fairly popular, widespread and iconic brand. It's losing its appeal because of other category choices or other brand choices in the category. What do you think? Why did you mark Milo down this year? Its familiarity scores are down. It's not connecting as well with the, the younger demographic. So this goes well beyond what might have been the challenges over the last uh, couple of years. That's something that's more built in and we've seen that decline now over two or three years. So it's really important to separate what the impact of the last two years has been with what might be brand erosion over time. Really interesting. So in terms of your data now, let's get into some of this meaty stuff because there's so much conversation in the marketing sector around brand and brand equity. 
Firstly, who's tapping brand finance data? Is it marketing, finance, investment banks, investors? How is it being used across the board, Mark, with this data? So the type of work we do is used by marketers, as we've already noted, but also very much by financiers, investors, as well as even um, uh, legal when it comes to disputes over uh, brand value, etc. So when you value brands, you tend to do it for two reasons. You'll do it for commercial reasons or technical reasons. And the commercial reasons tend to be driven by markers, but increasingly CEOs and CFOs who are always looking for hard metrics to assess the performance of their assets, of which brand is a key one. So those commercial reasons can include wanting to know what the return on brand investment is for budget setting, for determining and uh, guiding brand strategy and optimising brand architecture. On the technical side, which tends to be where the financiers, the legals, the tax people hibernate, that's driven more by M&A, investor relations, financing and uh, tax disputes and, and other forms of litigation over business value of which brand will often be one which comes under the uh, the microscope. So it, it, it does tend to divide between commercial and technical reasons, and that's where the uh, which way the audience may fall as well. How common is it for marketers these days to, well, I should state at the outset too, I mean, brand finance, when your methodology is very, it's steeped in global accounting standards, right? This isn't a consumer sentiment study that asks people their favourite brands and it's got some sentiment sort of swings in it. This is actually where you accounting types and bean counters get right into the deep detail on accounting standards and applying that to intangible value. So it's a, it's a little more robust than a global sentiment study of consumers, right? That's probably important to point out. Well, in it, it, both categories, it's robust. Essentially, what we're doing is putting financial lens around marketing effectiveness and contribution. And you're right, that's guided in part by global accounting standards. It's also uh, guided by international standards, ISO standards for both brand valuation and brand equity or brand evaluation. So there are standards there which drives the approach one would take towards evaluating a brand or indeed valuing a brand. So it's a robust approach. Some people may say, there's a level of judgment involved which through which the figures can vary. But in, interesting, so that that is the same as any asset valuation. There's always conjecture over the value, which ultimately can only ever be determined by the market. Yeah, right. And that plays itself out. So how common is it now, Mark? Are you seeing any swings um, or interest for brands and the marketing activities inside an organisation to be benchmarked on brand valuation and whether there's a link there, because obviously we are talking earlier, you are noting an increase in in agencies and some brands trying to link their softer brand health metrics to brand valuations. So firstly, do you see the movement? And then we'll ask about, you know, do these soft and hard measures, if you like, do they exist? So we're definitely seeing it and it's happening across both marketers and indeed their agencies, because ultimately they're all looking for way to validate the value they're adding to the business they are working for or working on. The other way in which we're looking at this is that markers will often talk about their role, the dimensions of their role in terms of the budgets they manage and the number of people they have reporting to them. And that certainly does provide an insight into the level of responsibility you may have. But ultimately, 
it gives a far greater scale of understanding of the responsibility marketers bring to the table when you talk about marketers rather than what might be the size of the budget, but rather the assets they're valuing within the business, of which brand is the prime value-creating asset. And as you can see from our top 100, that can be, when you're looking at the top 10, worth billions of dollars. So marketers are responsible for managing those assets. So if you're responsible for managing the assets, the only way in which you can really effectively manage those assets is by measuring them and noting why are they changing from one year to the next and what's driving that change. So it's really turn, moving brand away from what commonly is perceived to be a tool businesses use in their communications with customers and other stakeholders to where it's treated as a key value-creating asset in the business, and that's putting market marketing on the centre stage and it's putting it right up with the C-suite who are saying, ultimately, what are we here for? We're here to oversee the management of our key assets in the business and that we're optimising their performance. Some of the advertising agencies out there is, I think agencies in Australia often get pillared, but gee, there's some good work going on. There's some good work, there's some good thinking, and some of the more progressive agencies, uh, they come and speak directly to us these days. You know those agencies, they're always looking for what what else is there? What else? What else? They're, they do a lot of thinking around that, and they're the ones who are interested in this more. Some of the traditional agencies, I think it comes down to where they've got those traditional measures and no one seems to question them, so everyone happily goes along. But as I said before, sometimes those traditional measures are only representing about 30% of the whole effort and contribution. You've got to look at those investment measures. You've got to look at those output measures in terms of, well, that's great. You've got this strength in terms of your brand equity, but is it actually converting into financial performance? And that conversion is sometimes uh, not as apparent as what one may think. How do those benchmarks look, Mark? Is it different by enterprise, how they're trying to link brand investment activity from the company to the balance sheet and what the brand is actually worth on the balance sheet? So in terms of the balance sheet, the brand can own, along with any other intangible asset, can only sit on the balance sheet if it has been bought or sold and, and that price sits on the balance sheet. And it's challenging in the sense that that price will sit on the balance sheet forever and a day, even though over a 10-year period that brand may have appreciated uh, five times, it still sits on the balance sheet at that value. So it's more about not necessarily how it sits on the balance sheet, but how it sits within the business. Because ultimately, in a lot of businesses now, the intangible value accounts for 70% of overall business value, of which brand probably accounts in most businesses for 20 to 30% of that overall business value. So from a board's perspective, from a CEO or CFO's perspective, and certainly from a marketer's perspective, you can't ignore the value that asset brings to the business, not only in terms of uh, relative value to other assets, but how much that value is contributing economic value to the brand owner. And so let's get to this really interesting sort of nexus between Marketing can be seen as soft and a sort of a light touch on and driving enterprise value by the C-suite and finance, for instance, and even investors. At the same time, it's really interesting when you see a merger, an acquisition, a takeover, where brand is often cited and the brand value and the brand is cited as a big reason for why company X or brand Y is subject to a takeover interest. Is there a sort of a disconnect going on, a convenient disconnect even, Mark, between 
the investment community going, we really buy brand when it's about M&A, merger and acquisition, but when these marketing people start talking about building soft measures and brand equity, well, we can do without that. Is there a disconnect that is closing, increasing? What's the sense, do you think, between those two communities, the marketing and and the finance and investors? So in many respects, it comes down to the way those audiences, uh, the way that the lens through which they view the brand. So in marketing, as we talked about before, probably when people are trying to provide a gauge or measure as to how big the marketing and advertising industry is, it's often quoted that there's about $32 billion in total spent. That's often the figure that's quoted, give or take a billion, I guess. And that's media and everything else that marketing does. Meeting and everything else is yeah. $32 billion. When you talk about intangible assets and the interest of the financial sector in intangible assets, which in Australia is north of a trillion dollars. Now, Of that trillion dollars, our top 100 brands would account for $161 billion of that value. Overall, if you look at the total value of brands in Australia, that's around about $400 billion. So suddenly you're talking about a completely different scale and dynamic in terms of the role of brand when it comes to investment. And again, we talk about intangibles. And you often will now look at a a company which has a market-to-book ratio, say, of 3.3, which implies that tangible assets of business account for about 30% of value. The other 70%, which is of real interest to investors and indeed private equity players, when they're saying, how do we get more value out of the business? It's that remaining 70%, which, as I said, in Australia is north of a trillion dollars. Suddenly brand, which is 40% of that, it's a big player. And people want to know more about how brand can drive business value. So big difference between brand as part of that intangible asset class, trillion dollars, marketing and advertising associated media budgets, 32 billion. So that's why we need to get away a bit from marketing spend to really looking at brand in terms of an asset and how much value it's generating. And so in the world of finance and deals, brand is very much seen as key. But as you say, it's often only at the point of time in a deal during an M&A where we may be bought in. And I have to say often it's not at the beginning, but more towards the end where they're saying we really need to get a fix now on just what value the brand along with these other intangible assets is worth. That's where the interest in and these are big, big deals. And ironically, there's not many marketers sitting around the table when that's happening. And is that because they are in the weeds on brand equity and not in the upside on what it can deliver to a future enterprise value, for instance? They're not necessarily forward focused on the the enterprise? Well, often marketers and a lot of the research around the brand and its equity is expressed in percentages, not in dollar value. So as one would say, you can't bank percentages, you can only bank dollars. That's why getting back to earlier in our conversation today, we're talking about the importance of brand value to understand just what these assets are worth and how much they're changing from one period to the next and why they're changing. Because if you can uncover that, then that's going to help drive your future strategy and investment decisions. And that's where you're going to get more buy-in, not only from those internal stakeholders, be they CEOs, CFOs and boards, but more and more you'll see marketers being part of the whole investor relations aspect as well. 
in terms of those external audiences because suddenly marketing is talking in a language that finance understands. So just zipping back to that earlier conversation we had about how marketers and agencies, you're seeing sort of an upswing in them trying to link some of the measures they do around brand equity to brand valuation. What are you seeing them trying to trial or explore or link up in those instances, Mark, and how common is it? So marketers and agencies are always trying to improve brand strength. It's really an end goal of what any contribution they will make to increasing brand value overall and ultimately business value. And we shouldn't get lost. And brand strength, to be clear, as you said earlier, is a precursor to brand valuation. You use brand strength as a signal. Correct. And brand strength is the area for which marketers and agencies have the most influence and control over. So when one's assessing the strength of the brand, they're looking at what are the attributes of the brand that are creating the most favourable perceptions amongst customers and other stakeholders. The questions then starts to get asked, well, where should we be investing? Are we, should we continue to invest in our strengths or should we be doing something more about those areas where we're not performing as well relative to competitors? So that's when you start to bring in that financial analysis where you're saying, well, if we invest X amount in trying to lift our uh, consideration attribute and we achieve the lift we're targeting of 20%, it's then saying, how much then is that contributing all other things being equal to adding value to the brand? So again, it's all about converting those percentages into financial value, then suddenly you're having that discussion with CFOs, not on the basis of the cost of investment, but rather how much the investment will realise in terms of added value, not only to the brand, but to the business overall. Far easier way to discuss what is the right budget setting. And you've seen some interesting cases on the ground there, Mark. You feel free to name them all, of course, and what their valuations are, but I don't think we'll get there. But you've seen some interesting developments on that trials. So client confidentiality can be a bit of a bore at times. But Telling me. What's interesting to note is you're seeing the sectors that are probably focusing more on brand value are the ones that in some respects are going through significant challenge, like the banks, like the telcos. The retailers have always probably placed a bit more emphasis on brand value, so they continue to do that. But it's those sectors that, in some respects, are going through very challenging times, very much impacted by technology. That's where they're trying to get an understanding, not only of the value of their brand, but how that value can address what are some of those challenges in the business. And that gets increasingly the ear of uh, the C-suite and the board. So it comes back down ultimately for many marketers and being able to justify the level of investment they believe they require to be able to deliver on the targets they've been set. Let's get a cheat sheet from you. Well, I'm going to try to, Mark, at least, which is what should marketers, what dimensions around brand and brand management and investment should they be managing if they are going to get better scores from brand finance in terms of the signals into brand strength and brand valuation? What should they be really looking at? So a couple of things there. Firstly, there's often a a conundrum for many marketers in saying, well, we measure a few things, but we don't measure everything. And that can be a challenge because sometimes the things that are measured are the easiest things to measure, which often can be in the digital space, but it's not necessarily the space that's delivering all the value. So it's really important to get 
the metrics right and to make sure that the metrics you're using are the ones that are effectively covering the totality of the value that the brand is generating. So often when it comes to measurement, some of the most important areas to measure can sometimes be the most difficult as well. So that can create inertia within the business to how you go about that. And the other inertia can be, of course, the cost of measurement. And marketers will often say, the cost of measurement is high. Yes, I agree with it, but I'm looking at the cost of measurement as opposed to perhaps having an additional person in terms of resourcing our marketing effort. The key thing there is to make sure you've got your measures right, to do it consistently, but ultimately to just start measuring because any measures are going to provide insight. And by measuring and then looking at uh, how much you're doing in terms of measurement is generating value in the brand will often then help identify what are the other areas you're measuring because where is all this additional value coming from because we're not measuring it. So by undertaking evaluation, you get that total understanding of where all value is coming from as opposed to what might be a system of metrics that has been in place for a while that has been accepted throughout the business and for which it's easily understood, but it doesn't necessarily cover all the areas for which value is being generated. Give us an example. What are those measurements? When you said so, some of those measurements look too hard in the early stance to track or measure, what are those ones that look hard that maybe that brands and, and brand owners should be considering with more seriousness? Sure. So the brand equity measures are most commonly the ones used by businesses to get a better understanding as to what's happening in terms of their marketing investment and the return they're getting on it. When you're looking at the strength of the brand, you've also then got to look at the quality of investment you're making in the brand. And that can be across a number of areas, whether it be digital, whether it be value for money, whether it be across total spend and the allocation of that spend. That can become difficult in terms of putting in place the econometric modelling to measure the return on that. But we are seeing the bigger brands, no doubt, making those investments because they can then see the return, which could then help justify further investment. The other area of measure, of course, is financial performance and understanding how much the brand is contributing to business revenues. That's really important because ultimately when you look at a brand, you're saying how much of a premium does a brand generate for this business as opposed to this business if it wasn't branded at all? How much of a premium does the brand bring to the business? And if you don't understand that, then it's very difficult to understand the role the brand is playing in business success and how much economic value it's driving ultimately for the business year on year. So it's no doubt challenging because it does require investment. It requires know-how, it requires understanding. But uh, to make that level of investment, more often than not, will give far deeper insights into where the brand sits within the business, how important it is to the business. For instance, as I said before, brand can account for 20 to 30% of overall business value. Your brand equity measures are not going to tell you that. And often, one way in which you can measure brand's contribution is that often brand value will decline, especially during tough economic times. Uh, brand value will, in fact, increase. So we often talk about brand value to enterprise value. One of the key metrics will often apply is we can say previously brand was accounted for 14% of that ratio. 
it's increased to 20%. So the brand is actually fortifying the business during what could be uh, challenging times. Conversely, a brand's value can increase. But when we look at it, getting to back to what we were speaking about before, it was simply riding the wave of very favourable marketing conditions when, in fact, the brand value to enterprise value can, in fact, decline. So the joy one may get out of increased brand value can often be offset by noting that uh, most of the value was generated by external conditions. Well, it's interesting. We hear so much about the language of marketing talking, whether it be in audience terms, in a communications and media context, or whether it be in brand equity measures and and those softer signals that you actually use to help shape what the outlook might be for a brand valuation. We often hear how those brand equity measures are not the language of the boardroom, that marketers need to talk more in direct financial terms and direct financial impact to a business. So it's interesting though, because all those things that we hear so often are too soft for the board and finance actually are directly going into brand valuation scenarios. Yeah, look, it's, it's the minute you start using a term like soft measures, it's really creating a negative perception immediately. I just transgressed, didn't I, Mark? You did. You did. Take it back. Yeah. It's all down to language in many respects, but those soft measures we're talking about are really the, the brand equity measures, the attributes. They're expressed in percentage terms. Marketers understand what an increase in percentage terms may be in, in those attributes. It's often difficult to get a board excited about uh, consideration being up 15% because the board will say, that sounds good, but what does it mean in terms of how much more money is it putting into our till? So again, it gets back to converting percentages into dollar signs, and that's really what it's about. So suddenly those soft measures, as one may refer to them, become hard measures, and more importantly, they become robust measures. And they have the same application of discipline that financial people especially are dealing with hour by hour every day. So suddenly marketing is really addressing itself in terms of the lens through which a CFO is looking at the business. And that'll get buy-in. And, and, and certainly CFOs buy into brand value just as much as uh, marketers in many businesses. And you'll see it in financial publications and accounting publications. There's a lot of emphasis now on brand value and intangible value, because as I said before, intangible value can account for 70% of the value of the overall business. So if you're not measuring that 70% of intangible value, then it's very hard to understand what's happening with the business. And that's where boards get nervous. So is anyone doing it well in that context of looking at percentage uplift in brand equity measures and then putting a figure to it? Are you seeing that done well anywhere? Yes, as said before, we're seeing that partly in financial services sector where it's very strong. And that's not surprising because by being in the financial sector, there is always that drive to come up with financial measures. So not surprising. In retail, there is that tradition and in manufacturing where a lot of those consumer metrics bound up in brand equity are always being accepted. And perhaps there's a, a greater level of acceptance of traditional research data and accepting that a 20% increase in consideration, for example, is sufficient to be guided by their investment decisions. So it's not surprising financial services, uh, telcos as well, emerging technology. And sorry, just on that, on financial services and telcos, what you were just about to go to, that is where you're seeing the marketing-led brand 
health metrics linked to brand valuation scenarios, evaluations? Very much so. Right. That's where a lot of the interest, that's where a lot of the demand is coming from. And as I said before, it's marketers certainly, but it's also uh, finance people within the organisation as well. And, and the, other, the other pressure point, of course, is that analysts external to businesses are very much driving that discussion at the moment because they're often saying, we understand your P&L, we understand your balance sheet, we've read your annual report, that's great, good to hear, but what are the signposts to the future? And often it can be said that uh, accounting is an historical assessment of the business. Marketing is very much all about future cash flows and signposts as to what's going to happen next, and that's led by brands. So in many respects, marketing's got the opportunity to really dominate where the growth is in businesses in intangible value uh, led by brand. Interesting. Um, really interesting. Listen, we're going to run out of time per usual. Just on that, you know, you talked about future cash flows and so forth and what marketing contributes to that. We are looking like we've got new pressures coming at us very fast in 2022. Inflation, interest rates, discretionary spending from consumers um, most likely to be crimped. What does the next 12 months look like for brand valuations, brand equity, and the task at hand for both uh, enterprise and marketers to do something in amidst the turmoil? Are we looking at potentially some crimping of valuations in the next 12 months if things go look like they might be at the moment, Mark? Well, there's no doubt there's a lot of uh, market and economic indicators suggesting there's challenging times ahead. The strong brands, as we've said, discussed already today, can become a haven for uncertainty. So the key takeout there is to continue to invest in the brand to ensure that not only, I mean, one of the things, of course, in any downturn is that that's always the opportunity to grow market share when the cost of voice is often less. Understanding your brand becomes important in knowing in which area of focus the brand should be positioned. And as we mentioned earlier, using the retail example, a lot of the emphasis in terms of brand strategy wasn't necessarily towards customer, but in those other stakeholders as well, who were under similar pressure and nervous, be it suppliers, distributors, financiers. And of course, one of the most important areas of branding is the whole internal marketing and ensuring every employee in a business understands the brand and knows what strength the brand brings to that business, which gives employees confidence that this is a good business and brand to uh, be associated with. I look forward to seeing some more developments on that front and really unpacking what a case study looks like, Mark, in terms of brand equity to brand valuation and just how what good looks like. We may loop back around on that, I think, um, whether it be local or global case studies, because I think you know the industry is pretty hungry to substantiate its investment and or its, its role. And you often see, we hear it all the time, don't we? We go into a downturn and marketing investment gets cut. We hear executive leadership, you know, you talk about them being on the balance sheet and brands being valued, but let's cut where we can when things get curly. Um, does that have an impact? So look, there's a whole bunch more we could and should unpack and all that. Mark Crow, great uh, conversation, quite insightful. And I look forward to hearing some more on some brands doing interesting things. Thanks for joining. Thanks, Paul. Enjoyed it very much. This MI3 Audio Edition was presented by Paul McIntyre. That's more. Producer Nick Slater. Music by Matt Dwyer. For more episodes, go to listener.com or download the Listener app and search MI3 Audio Edition to listen for free. Listener.